This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about the money, boys! Here we go again. I am not a toy. I'm a spork. I was made for soup, salad, maybe chili, and then the trash. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we explore film series one movie at a time. I'm your host, James Hamrick, and I am joined with my co-host, Gabe Green. What's going on, man? Hey, you still alive? Uh, I think so. Everything seems to be going pretty normal. It's, it's kind of crazy with all of this social distancing. Um, I'm realizing my life hasn't changed very much. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, do with that what you will. But, I think, and this is, this is silver lining. This is not me trying to make light of the very serious things going on. But the silver lining to all of this is now, like, it is no longer weird to just want to sit on your couch and watch movies all day. It's kind of like the expected thing. The norm is just I resent that type of thinking. It was never weird. Well, exactly. And now everybody else is on board with that. that. So totally normal and perfectly, you know, well and socially adjusted. Exactly. Now I'm doing my part. (laughs) Yeah, I I work in a, a... delivery so like my job has stayed the same so honestly my life has hardly changed at all and i'm just a little more careful about what you know when and where i cough yeah the whole world's gone mad but uh, that does not stop us although <laughs> we, we have been kind of absent over the last few weeks due to uh some various illnesses uh that were probably not uh covid19 <laughs> yeah that's the thing so I was telling you before we started recording that like I get a month long cough every single year right around this time and like without fail for the past several years and I'm I'm finally getting over it and that that's why we weren't able to record the past couple times uh, we planned to uh, but man let me tell you what at work you cough at the wrong time you see heads <laughs> go up you know it's, it's you know guys don't worry don't worry uh, yeah so today uh, we're going back uh, to the Toy Story franchise to finish up. Uh, that series with uh, last year's Toy Story 4. But before we begin our discussion on that, I want to ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, to please uh, take a moment to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Uh, it would be very helpful, help people find the show, and we would be very, very appreciative. And uh, you can also like us on Facebook to keep up to date with all the uh, latest episodes and to give feedback that can end up on the show. And speaking of said feedback, I asked our listeners on Facebook and Twitter uh, what they thought about this film, and we got a depressingly negative response jessica said it was just okay david said good moral but meh film uh samuel dotson said the definition of an okay film uh keegan and peel completely steal the show for me but other than that it's a wholly forgettable unnecessary entry into the series don shanahan from every movie has a lesson said you know my thoughts yes we do and we don't want to hear them uh he's like one of the few of the one percent on ride tomatoes that didn't like this movie and (sighs) (laughs) <laughs> um, J- Jennifer said, not a fan of Bo Peep at all. She uses girl power in, all, in a negative way. We also felt like Woody leaving in the end was, in, was disingenuous to his character. Drew Dodgen said, okay, but not great. I blame Forky for most of what I don't like about the movie. That character's existence has brought up more questions about how the world works than necessary. Forky is the cure to all that ails this world. Um, <laughs> Shane said, the story should have ended with Toy Story 3. Toy Story 4 was amusing and clever in fits and starts, but compared to what came before, it was a colossal letdown. 
Uh, over on Twitter, Mike at Jarek said, Kaboom, I think he's the only good thing from this unnecessary addition to a fine trilogy. Um, then MC Myers at Film Objective said, For an epilogue, it's bafflingly focused on new relationships. The toys now seem to deserve free will, which means freedom from their child, contradicting the rest of the s- series arcs. The ending of Toy Story 2 is now a bitter note. What are we supposed to think of it now? I, uh, I'm so depressed. I'm just... <laughs> I don't think this has happened before where 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 every single one has been negative. I think this may be a first. Yeah, I need a moment. I just can I just argue against these reviews <laughs> these uh, <laughs> these interactions for the, for the rest of the episode. Um yeah, I, I will have some various things to say about some of those. Um but let's, before we move into the main discussion, uh let's talk a little bit about how this film came to the big screen. Um so Toy Story 3 came out in 2010. And while the voice cast had been signed on for potential sequels, uh, there initially were no announced plans for another sequel. Um, however, both Andrew Stan and Josh Cooley, the director, um, say that there, there were ideas percolating since before 3 had even came out. Um, and I was listening to the, the Q&A podcast with Jeff, Jeff Goldsmith, though, and he, he was interviewing uh, Andrew Stan and Stephanie Folsom uh, on this film. And Stan was essentially saying that while working on Toy Story 3, it kind of came to him that the kids – each specific child is merely like a chapter in the lives of these toys and not the sum, t- sum total of their journeys. And it was like then that the ideas for a fourth film started percolating within the studio. At some point, uh, John Lasseter, Andrew Stan, Pete Doctor, and Leon Critch, uh developed an idea for a fourth film. And uh, Lasseter and Stan- Stanton sat down and wrote a treatment for the fourth film in secret. Um, Lasseter said that they didn't even tell uh, Pixar president Ed Catmull at the time uh, you know, initially working just to make sure it was something they wanted to pursue and uh, you know, not, not to get ahead of themselves and announce it if it wasn't a story they were passionate about. In over, November of 2014, it was officially announced as in development. Uh, John Lasseter, who had directed the first two, the first two Toy Story films, uh, would direct, and Rashida Jones and Will McCormick would write. Um, it's not entirely, you know, not a lot is known about what their initial concept and idea for the film would be. Um, you know, they still receive story credits, so there's obviously a lot of their, a lot of the material still in there. Uh, but what I remember from early announcements, it was described as like a romantic com- comedy that would uh, focus on the search for Bo Peep, uh, who, who had obviously been lost for many years. Then in uh, 2015, uh, Josh Cooley, who was a writer on Inside Out and uh, the director of the shorts, AJ, uh, George and AJ and Riley's First Date, was announced as co-director with Lasseter. Um, then in early 2017, indie writer Martin Hines was brought into the project, uh, presumably to work with Jones McCormick, but almost nothing is known about his involvement. Uh, then came a whole bunch of major shakeups. In July of 2017, John Lasseter left the project in order to better focus on his work as the head of both Pixar and Disney Animation, and Josh Cooley was promoted to sole director on the project. Uh, then in November of 2017, Lasseter uh, left Pixar, uh, Disney, amid uh, you know, the, the slew of allegations of misconduct and all that very sad thing that went down then. Um, initially, I thought he would taken off Toy Story four, you know, because of that. But you no, know, then I found out, you know that happened months before that. And then in the same month, uh, Jones and McCormick left the film. Uh, there was some in- initial speculation that it was related to Lasseter's misconduct, uh, but they've denied that it had anything to do with that. It was just, um, you know, Pixar shaking of a project as they as they want to do if they find it's not working. Uh, according to Andrew, Andrew Stanton, the story had simply come to a roadblock. Um, it just wasn't working. So they decided they needed a new approach. Um, and this is something that happens really frequently with Pixar films. Um, if a movie isn't coming together, they will just overhaul it and start fresh. You know, they've done that with Toy Story, you know, Toy Story 2, Ratatouille, uh, Brave, 
um, good dinosaur. Like they, they, they're almost famous for how how often they will you know fire directors or writers if they need to, you know, change something. So then, uh, Stephanie Stephanie Falson was brought under replacement, and we've mentioned her a couple times on the show. Uh, she wrote some episodes of Star Wars Resistance and uh, did some uncredited work on Thor Ragnarok, and she's currently writing on the uh, Amazon Lord of the Rings show. Hmm. There you go. And then Andrew Stanton is the other main credited writer of the film. Uh, he described his job as the Toy Story tone police. And he kind of oversaw uh, Folsom's work uh, to make sure it stayed faithful to the world and characters. Um, he stayed on the outside of the production, and then w- then he would come in to rewrite what they had, so he would have a, a more objective outsider's pr- uh, perspective. And if you don't know, Andrew Stanton is the uh, writer director of you know, Finding Nemo and Wally and Finding Dory. Um, yeah, but he, and he's also got writing credits on like many of the early films, and he, he he's you know he's all over Pixar stuff. Um, so the final credited writers are Stanton and Folsom. Uh, however, uh, Lasseter, Jones, McCormick, Josh Cooley, the story supervisor, Valerie Lapointe, Martin, and Martin Hines all receive story credits. So there's eight credited writers on this movie, which isn't – it's not completely unheard of in an animated film. Um, the first Toy Story uh, had also had eight writers between the screenplay and story, like a, with, with how long these films are in pre-production and how you know, they're rewritten. And essentially, like storyboard artists can almost be – you know, qualified as writers at some point, especially you look back like in early Disney where they, they don't, don't even have like real directors because they would just split it up. Like certain people work on certain sequences. So the, the production of an animated film isn't, isn't exactly the same as it is, you know, with, with um, live action, you know, there's far more, there's far more cooks in the kitchen in yeah. an animated film. So for the film's cast, uh, the majority of the cast came back from the previous trilogy uh, to voice their respective characters Unfortunately, Don Rickles, the voice of Mr. Potato Head, had passed away before the script had even been finished. Uh, And it was actually Rickles' family uh, who contacted Pixar in hopes of some way including Rickles in the film. So they had 25 years of archived audio. Um, Most of that was from uh, unused dialogue from the previous trilogy as well as the video games. And a bunch of shorts and TV specials. Like, it's, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and... And, you know, like, it's because he's not a major character, It, I mean, you don't really notice it in the film. Annie Potts returned after an absence in 3 to voice Bo Peep. Um, and apparently, like, I, I read somewhere that she she was told whenever she was um, contacted for Toy Story 4 that there, she was intentionally left out of 3 in case they wanted to do, like, this kind of story with her in 4. Um, I'm not sure how accurate that is, but... I mean, according to what, what Stanton and Cooley were saying, that doesn't seem too far-fetched. Yeah. Um, Tony Hale was cast as Forky, the toy experiencing an existential crisis. He's not a toy. He's trash. That's right. Sorry. Uh, Christina Hendricks was cast as Gabby Gabby. Uh, Keegan-Michael Key and Jordan Peele were hired to play Duck and Bunny. Um they were hired because they wanted that kind of improv comedy, um, and they did improv a lot of their lines, as did Keanu Reeves, who is cast as Duke Kaboom. <laughs> Bill Hader was cast as Axel the Carney, who has like one line in the whole film. Which, who's that? He's the, he's the guy who sees Buzz, and I think he just says like, cool, or something, whenever he like picks him up, and then he oh, ties the, him there. The, the the vendor? Yeah. Okay. Like, for some reason, they got Hader for the one line. <laughs> Carl Weathers returns from Toy Story of Terror as Combat Carl. Madeline McGraw, who had, who's already in uh, Cars 3 as Maddie McGeer, um, voiced Bonnie. Uh, she replaced Emily Hahn, uh, who played her in the previous film, as well as the shorts. Comedians uh, Carol Burnett, Mel Brooks, Carl Rayner, and Betty White 
um, portrayed the older veteran toys um, that are that Woody meets, you know, and they're kind of ready for him to embrace that kind of life. And the character names are pretty great. Mel Brooks is Melephant Brooks. Uh, Carol Burnett is Cheryl Burnett. Betty White is uh, Bitey White. And Carl Rayner is Carl Rayneroceros, um, <laughs> which is pretty fantastic. For the film score, uh, director Josh Cooley uh, hired Newman because he said uh, he couldn't imagine making a fourth one without Randy Newman. Um, Newman provided new themes for Bonnie, Gabby Gabby, and Duke Kaboom, um, uh, as well as one for Forky. Obviously, there's a lot of returning score, which just, you know, the second you hear the the main theme, it's just... Oh. Or Buzz Lightyear's theme, like this iconic music in there. Oh, yeah. Um, and there's also two new original songs to the film. Um, one is the uh, the Ballad of the Lonesome Cowboy, uh, as well as I Can't Let You Throw Yourself Away, which Newman also performs in, uh, and won an Oscar now. It, I thought it, it lost. Oh, no. It was nominated. No, sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, which was not, yeah. It was... Uh, the uh, Elton John film won. Yes, that's right. I'm totally blanking on for some reason. <laughs> uh, Rocket Man. Yeah, that's right. Uh, for the film's release, it had its world premiere at the El Capitan Theater in Hollywood, California, on June twelfth, or sorry, June eleventh, two thousand nineteen, uh, and then had its wide release on June twenty first. The good old days when they were still releasing movies. Ah, uh, I remember <sighs> it like it was last year. <laughs> it was last month. Um, <laughs> yeah. All right. So, uh, uh, James, I'll let you go first. Uh, this was your first viewing of this film. Um, unlike a true fan, you didn't see it in theaters. Uh, <laughs> So what what did you think of it? Hey, I I didn't see Toy Story three in the theaters, and that's like my favorite Pixar. So for some for some reason, I don't know why I've I have a bad habit of like not catching Pixar films in theaters. The good dinosaur will never forgive you. I'm sorry. It's so good. Um, I like this. Uh, it's I I understand in a way people's complaints with it. Um. It definitely feels like an epilogue, um, which isn't even a bad thing. Like sometimes these sort like that kind of wrapping up two two movies that I really enjoy also do that. I feel like you know Far From Home feels like an epilogue to to the Infinity Saga, and uh, Breaking Bad is my favorite show of all time, and uh, El Camino, which I oh, really so love, is very very much an epilogue it's just it's this nice little tying up of loose things and making sure that the last thing you see Uh, rocky balboa yeah like it's it's these little i don't know i i like these kinds of stories so i really enjoyed it um it's not i i feel like the the trilogy is pretty much perfect um like on our previous episodes i guess there there were any criticism we had across the previous three never go above like minor nitpicks. They're virtually flawless. And I can't say the same for Toy Story 4. Um, I do have issues with this, but I still enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Um, to the point to where like whenever I think of Toy Story 4, um, I I don't immediately, the way a, a lot of other people seem to do, is like, oh yeah, that unnecessary one. I just think, oh yeah, that was good. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I enjoyed it. And I plan on rewatching it soon. I, I want to go through the... I'm actually probably going to be having a Pixar marathon uh, myself before too long. Um, and I'm thinking about instead of chronological release. How many current marathons does that make for you? Don't worry about marathons, all right? I'm 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 marathoning everything at the same time. It's fine. 
except Harry Potter. Uh, I'm sorry, it was moving on. Um, <laughs> but anyways, so yeah, I, I definitely enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, so I, the first time I saw it in theaters, I was like, that was a, a solid you know, four-star movie. Um, you know, I enjoyed it, but it didn't quite grab me like the the, you know, the first four Toy Story films, or or even in some ways like you know the classic Pixar films where where they just break your soul and make you weep. However, on the second viewing, I think I I it, I kind of got what it was a lot more, and I just started seeing. Whereas I think on the first viewing, for a long time, you're kind of wondering, just like where is this going? What's it doing? Because it has a, such an atypical Toy Story structure, it's much more sedate, less adventurous. Um, however, on the second view, I think you, you can start to see the story, the, you know, the storytelling and the setups and pay, a lot, there's way more setups and payoffs. Just the story feels far more organic on a second viewing, uh, as you know, that actually liked it even more on the second view. And I'm curious to see how, how you would feel on your, on a rewatch for you. I mean, pretty much every movie that I like, I like more on a second viewing. So just how it goes. One thing I feel like we do have to address right off the gate is the whole why does this film exist thing, which is, you know, it happens a lot with sequels and remakes and reboots and whatnot, but it seems to be particularly intense in the conversation surrounding this film. And what I found fascinating in my research and kind of watching all kinds of Toy Story material over the last month is that there is a deep disconnect about this franchise between Pixar and between the audience. Whereas the audience, it seems, feels like Toy Story 1, 2, and 3, the perfect trilogy, that's it. You know, ne- you know, don't touch it again. You know, that th- that is our story. That's all the toy, that's all we ever want to hear from these toys. For Pixar, this always it, this seems that they always view this as just a living franchise that or a living series where these are these are the characters and people that they love. And they'll come back occasionally and make, and you know tell different stories and and it's so clear when you look at it that that Toy Story three was never intended to be an ending. You know immediately after Toy Story three came out, they, they you know they made the Toy Story tunes and they made three of those. They planned to make more and then they made two half hour TV specials. You know after Toy Story three, and you know it was quiet for a bit and then they made two, Toy Story four and now they have um and now they have the uh, the ten uh, Forky Ask a Question shorts and uh, the Lamp Life short like. This notion that this series has a definitive start and ending seems completely foreign to how Pixar views these characters in this world, which is it's always just interesting how differently artists and, you know, and their audience and their patrons view their own material. I feel like it happens often where like an artist like they'll make something and then years later like come back I have something more I want to say about that I have a new perspective and the audience is like no we don't want to hear it go away <laughs> it's I don't know it just it kind of rubs me the wrong way I feel like yeah I don't know if arrogance is the right word but it's just like something about audiences you know dictating the types of stories people can tell about their own you know tell about their own ideas just seems this feels wrong to me yeah, it's it's weird because in the case of like, oftentimes with bigger franchises, there is that sense of entitlement from, um, what like a lot of people in the, in the more film like the wider film circles would be like, oh yeah, like Star Wars fans are entitled. That's not how art works. That's not how, you know, there there's that kind of relationship between the art and the fandom is unhealthy. It's the artist's vision, this and that, and yet I feel like. 
there is that same it's it's not so much entitlement but it it ends up playing out in the same kind of way where there's still this sense that we have a right to to tell them what should happen when it should happen like you know that some people feel as if they should be able to control a franchise and then on the other side of the spectrum there's this crowd that's like all remakes are inherently bad sequels are you know they're just cash grabs this and that and so wherever you look there's somebody trying to exert some sort of control over over what's happening and that's not entirely you know i can understand that especially if you grew up in like the 80s or 90s with like the way they would churn out sequels back then with the director DVD, you know, director video right. sequels or like the like slasher sequels where they would just, you know, get the costume and slap a name on it and you put zero effort into and it. And the unfortunate amount of like bad sequels and bad remakes gives the idea credibility. It's just philosophically, I don't like the idea though. The idea that that we should that that any film doesn't deserve the right to, to start at at zero and go up or down from there, you know? And like if you're trying to say that like they're just it's just a money grab, like look at the way the, the way this this series is paced out. Like you had Toy Story One and Toy, Toy Story Two came out four years later. However, that was a rush production because Disney was trying to make a sequel. Then it's eleven years between two and three. And then there's another nine years between three and four. Like, that's not how sequels are made. If the studio mandated and you know put a, put a release date in the calendar and make and give us a movie, and also that, that seems to be kind of common for Pixar, um, the the car series is the only series that they kind of pump out. Um, the, even that has pretty decent you know, sizable gaps between their films. Uh, like there's 13 years between Fighting Nemo and Fighting Dory, 14 years between The Incredibles and Incredibles Two, um, and also both of those films those were also kind of creator driven because they happened after both Andrew Stan and Brad Bird have like massive failures in the live action world, kind of forcing them to, them to come back to Disney, you know, whether or not kind of a last day effort to save your career is true, true, or truly artistic, you know, true artistic worth. Um, it's still kind of creator driven. And like, there was like 12 years between Monsters Inc. and Monsters Juice. So there's like th- this kind of thing of the you know, Pixar just pumping out sequels. It doesn't really add up when you look at the timelines. And another thing was really interesting when I was looking back at the series that Every single one of these films has a is is a definitive end for the series. You know, there's no there's no uh, there's no questions or unease at the end of Toy Story. You know, it has that definitive ending. Toy Story Two is like even stronger of an ending. Like this is it's you know very looking forward to the future. This is what our life is now. And then the same and then Toy Story Three, you know, it's it's the new beginning, um, but also you know in a way that is, you know, has very strong finality. And then it's the same for the ending of uh, Toy Story 4. Like, the, all, every like every one of these sequels has been, quote-unquote, unnecessary. The story was complete. But they just had more to tell. And I think we're just, we're so prone to think in threes, you know. Once the third one's done, that is the trilogy. Anything after that is superfluous. There's There's just no... Anything beyond this trilogy is... is immediately considered excessive so uh, about this film um just right off the bat we got to talk about how freaking beautiful it is um just comparing this to like toy story one 
and where everyone's just a plastic action figure. I mean, the humans are like the toys are, yeah. but the humans are like plastic action figures, and it's everything's it's just solids, like just solid geometric shapes everywhere. Like, I mean, it, it it still looks good, it still holds up, but it's crazy. Compare like Scud, Sid's dog from the first one, to the cat, where. If you didn't tell me, I would think that was a real cat just kind of stretching and purring in the corner. Yeah. Or just the, the beginning of the film out in the rain. Like, I I can't imagine what it takes to to create something that looks like that. If you told me this was just live action plates, I would totally believe you. I, I, think, I think Pixar has completely perfected naturalistic lighting. And that, that's something that anime films don't really have. Like, you look... You know the, the the animated films of the two thousands. I think that's that started to change more recently with you know films like How to Train Your Dragon, where they're getting real live action DPs into to to help with it. But you look at a lot of animated films that the, you know, the lighting is all very basic and you know very everything's well lit. And but recently, have you you watched the trailer for Soul, Pete Doctor's next Pixar film? Yes. And it's it's like beautiful natural lighting and just the depth and texture of the entire world and. The camera, the camera work, dude. The camera work in this film is crazy. Like, it looks like live action plates, and it's so disciplined. Every like every shot in here is something that you could get with a real camera. And just the way they use like the sh- uh, the sh- the shallow uh, depth of field, uh, just with with the things out of focus in the background and rack focuses. Like it's. And just the 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 compositions are so simple and just film like normal like normal conversations while also you know understanding the scale of the toys in the world around them. It's it's just just on a technical level, it, it's so impressive to look at. Yeah. Now that we're on the topic of of that prologue, just to talk about that, um, that prologue itself just feels like Toy Story to its core. You know, like this mm-hmm. this. Uh, you know, no toy state like no toy, no toy gets left behind. There's all these. This is like probably like the fourth rescue mission we've seen in the series, and it's that that feels just. It feels like we're immediately back into this world. By the end of the scene, it's like, oh yeah, this is Toy Story. Yeah, like I saw fun hijinks. My heart now hurts because some like because it's Pixar and. And now I'm here. Like, they've got me where they need me. Um, especially considering this is between two and three, you know. It it has that kind of... We're just... It's another day in Andy's bedroom. It's it's a really strong way to start off. And it's a good way of reintroducing um, Bo Pete back into the story, considering her absence in three. Um, so, it's, it, I feel like it's a really... It does everything that a prologue needs in that it reintroduces a character... Um, important to this particular plot. It reintroduces us to the world and it gets us into the right emotional um, feel. It's it's a really... I just think it's a really good scene. And it's beautiful. Yeah. The, the way they effortlessly introduce the chemistry between... Uh... Uh, you know Woody and Bo Peep. Like I don't, I don't know if the actors recorded together, but there's there's such an easy relationship between those two. Like it's so naturalistic, and they just they just, they just fit together in a really cool way. Uh, I also like how this prologue sets up. You know Woody's uh, you know, to, to borrow a Harry Potter reference, you know his saving people thing, where he can't he has to save everyone. You know he's going after uh, 
RC and now he's he has to go get Bo Peep out of the box and he just he can't let go of anyone which is kind of has been a thing for him over the course of the series and you know it, they're, they're defining that core conflict right in the opening and that motif of his hands on the edge of the box yeah which come back later at the end um also like I I, I thought Bo Peep's you know the voice actor was always you know kind of impressing you know, like yeah uh, remember I'm only a couple of blocks away like she always had kind of a, a distinct presence to her but I didn't realize just how much I love Annie Potts in this role. Uh, did she stand out to you in this, in this viewing? Uh, I mean, I, I liked her a lot, yeah. And it, it's weird just because of... It, it's In a way, I thought it was a different voice actress, though. But maybe that's that's just because we got so little of her she, before. She's, she's not playing the 40s femme fatale anymore. Yeah. Which was kind of the, 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 the shtick in the first film. It felt like. Which is just weird saying that out loud but is that, is that, was, that was that your impression of her as well in the first film uh it, it to me it was it was kind of that that southern bell kind of, well not the southern bell and the ditzy or anything but it it felt like that kind of exaggerated vibe i guess um no i i think i do want to talk about probably my biggest not even issue, but I think kind of the thing holding this film back, I think from standing, you know, toe to toe with the best of the Toy Story films, which is all three of them. Um, I think the structure is odd. Um, and I, I, I think part of this is expectations of just, you know, all three Toy Story films kind of have that same uh, adventure aspect. You're lost toys. We got to get home. Rescues, hijinks, missions. You know, they ha- they have a structure and a style, and this film doesn't really do that. Um, there's very little in the way of the high adventure going on, and the toys are separated, and 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 where it's all just it's Woody, it's Woody and Bo Peep, and Buzz kind of has his own thing going on, but the rest of the toys they're all grounded back at the camper, and so they don't even really play a part. It's 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 far smaller, more character focused, and it's just quieter and. And there's there's just less action, less less, uh, just motion happening, which is just it's first of all it's so odd for an animated family film to be this quiet and you know thoughtful and contemplative, but also I I do feel like it could have just improved by a bit more action, a bit more motion. Um, I, I think you know we spent a lot of time in the antique shop, and the antique shop is one of the most impressive like digital sets I've ever seen. Just the, it's so meticulous and beautifully realized down, you're down to the last dust buddy and cobweb. But after a while, you're kind of done with the antique store. At least I was. And I feel like if, if it had more settings and a bit more movement, it would have just, it it could have, you know, just slipped better into that classic toy store. I feel like I realize it's not, this is a more grown up, more it's, it's, it, it is a grown-up film. It's just in it, it, its themes and it, what it's saying about the world and about life and in its structure and pacing. But I feel like adventure is kind of is so synonymous with Toy Story. It do, it does like even apart from being you know the un- unnecessary fourth film, quote unquote. It feels different totally and structurally from the rest of the series. I think in a way that isn't entirely to its favor. Yeah, it's weird because I I have a lot of those same issues and. One thing that that feels weird to me is that it feels both like what what you just said, tonally and structurally different. Well, at the same time, in some ways, like the actual 
facts of this is happening and then this is happening and this is happening a bit derivative of it as well like specifically toy story 2 like it feel you know andy or not andy woody is off on his own where his side of the story is you know still scenes with conversations and this is where like his bit his portion of this film that's where all of the thematic weight is that's where all of the emotional weight is and so um the other part of it is just not unnecessary or filler but it does feel as if this is where the real movie is happening and you know in toy story 2 it was the the rest of the toys on their rescue mission um and this is you know buzz kind of on his rescue mission and he, but then he's separated from the rest of the toys, and so then there's all of this bit like it, dynamics are kind of being broken up, and and the toys at the RV really are given nothing to do. Um, like I was, I was hoping that we'd be able to see uh, a relationship kind of build off of where Buzz and uh, Jesse were by the end of Toy Story three. And what if there were a couple coming into this film? Wouldn't that be? Wouldn't that be? Cool? Yeah, like that's. I mean, that's what I was expecting, and so whenever it just it felt. I don't know, like par for the course of where everything was. I'm like, oh, I was, I was hoping for more dynamics. Um, and and a, another thing, and this is, it's specific to, it, well, it's not specific to Toy Story 4. I feel like it's maybe most. And not to interrupt, but th- I think that would be thematically kind of um, relevant if Buzz and Jesse were together as a couple, kind of further accentuating the you know, the, um, what is Woody's loneliness yeah. and kind of, yeah, his, his, his need for something outside of just this desperate obsession with making sure life is entirely perfect. He's kind of like helicopter parenting almost of, uh, Bonnie. Yeah. And, uh, but th- there's, there's another problem. It feels, you know, it's not so much specific to Toy Story 4, but it's, I guess, most prevalent in it is after Toy Story 1, I, I don't think the series has ever um, really gotten everything it could have from the dynamic of Buzz and Woody. Like, I feel like it's, by the end of Toy Story 4, I was thinking, like, I, it's it's surprising how little these guys are actually together. Like, you you see the box art, and you, you're always like, oh, yeah, Buzz and Woody. But aside from Toy Story 1, they're not really together much. Um, and so when this film reaches its end, it's always them trying to find the other guy. Exactly. And, and when this film reaches its end, it's not as if I'm not emotional at all, but I was thinking, you know, if, if the, just the structure of these films relied less and less on, um, moving towards one another and like attempts at reuniting, I think that goodbye would have been a bit more just because it's, it's hard to say, well, this is breaking up the structure. This is breaking up the dynamic whenever that dynamic and structure is broken up every single film and we we so we're very seldom getting to see what the the ensemble looks like for extended periods of time Um, and so i was kind of surprised that this was another version of or another iteration of a toy is gone the point is trying to bring things back together yeah, I think there are two reasons for that. You know, one being, you know, they're both such dominant personalities and natural leaders. So, you know, and you know, so Buzz kind of has to be the face of one. If you're going to split up the stories, you know, you, you kind of have to put one on either side just to give them a face and a personality. Whereas, I, 
like I love Jesse. I love the other characters, but I don't know that any of them can kind of hold down a story in the way that Buzz can't. And this kind of makes that evident because whenever you remove uh, Woody and then Buzz from them, then the RV stuff does feel like, okay, we're we're back here because we need to know the state of the RV and where it is and what's going on. But that definitely feels like, okay, this is the, not the low point, well, kind of the low point of the movie in quality. Uh, but this is like, this is, this is where the movie's not really doing much. You know, all of the real story stuff is happening elsewhere. And I feel like that first film was so strong. And the, the, the scenes of them together in Toy Story 2, you know, you know, I came all this way because I believed in that toy. Like, the, the their friendship is so strong and unshakable that it's kind of taken for granted, especially in this film, which I don't, I don't think is entirely, un you know, wrong-footed. But, and, and then I think the big issue is just... I I talked about this in Toy Story three and four, two and three, but Buzz really hasn't had anywhere to go dramatically after Toy Story. You know, he had his big, epic, amazing arc in Toy Story two. He was kind of reminding you know reminding Woody of what Woody taught him and and playing the moral compass. Toy Story three, he was Spanish, and that was awesome. Yeah, I, mean, I feel like at least with in Toy Story 2's defense, I think that is a strong use of a character who has arrived at the end of an arc, of like using them as the anchor for the toy that was that kind of anchored them in the previous one. Like that made sense. I, I it's more Toy Story three and four where I feel like they they fail with him most, despite three being my favorite of the series. Yeah, and he's he's one of those characters I think I, I've talked about in the Marvel films, like Doctor Strange or Thor, where. When they change, they change, and they change big, and then they are what they are. And there's, and there's, there's no agonizing. There's no, you know, uh, neuroticism. <laughs> like, and and then you, it's kind of like, and you, I think Woody's almost like like a Tony Stark, where he's just constantly, you know, tearing himself down and self doubt, just nothing but neuroticism and, and quirks and faults. Whereas Buzz is just kind of he's so he's so confident. He is just who he is, and he doesn't need to grow and change that much because he's pretty much arrived. And I think he's a very difficult character to write for, as evidenced by the fact that Pixar hasn't been able to give him anything, uh, you know, internally dramatic for th for the three sequels. And and I was thinking though about like if is that just a necessity? Like is is that just something that we have to deal with? Is he a character that can't be given that kind of arc? And and I was thinking they kind of set themselves up to do something with him with the idea of the inner voice, I feel like that could have played into this idea of, you know, what he senses Woody's distance, you know, and maybe if you had Buzz feeling as if, you know, Woody is, there, there's something desperate about him, there's something distant about him, and Woody, or Buzz kind of feeling the pressure to step up and act as a leader, and, and him relying on what he thinks is, you know, like, that voice in your head, but he's, he's, still looking at it in this practical way of like, oh, it's this actual thing, as opposed to like truly looking to himself for this kind of leadership. And and I feel like you could have had his arc of like not, you know, he just goes from relying on Woody to relying on, you know, the the recorded messages in his uh, in him to the end of like realizing like you he's going to have him stop relying on these external things and start rely truly relying on himself. Yeah. Um, now that the 
you know, leadership has fallen to him. Yeah, maybe they could give him like a Captain America type arc where he has to be like the moral center or something. But that's by that time you're getting so far out of Toy Story, which is funny because to me Woody, despite being like as you described a uh, a Tony Stark character in that he's the one who's always it's this reactionary constant introspection kind of thing um in terms of where they leave him i got a lot of captain america vibes from what they do with woody here where you know he he's the he's the you know no soldier slash toy left behind he's the guy his his life after he gets over himself in toy story one he kind of just lives that life of duty, so he's steve rogers you know? in civil war like how can all of this come back exactly. to, to Marvel? Let's, let's do this, all right. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but you know, you know what I'm saying. It's just his life is personified by this sense of duty, this sense of protection for everybody else. Um, and so I got, I got the feeling that the, you know, the writers of Avengers and the writers of this both feel very similarly about their respective characters, where th- the end is a reward for them. It's like you. You've done good. You held the group together. Here's your love story. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. This this is his end game. Um, also, did did the buzz in our voice shtick work for you at all? Like, it doesn't work for me. Yeah, I I, I think the first the first time it happened, uh, well, really, like, because it happens like two or three times in the RV, and that was all funny. And maybe the first time after he gets out, um, but like it happens a lot. And those first, they're generic enough to where I'm like, okay, this is kind of funny. And then, I don't know, not that I'm looking at looking to Toy Story for any sense of re- realism, but, like, the specificity of some of these lines and the fact that, like... He did not have know, those lines before. He's been bashed around. Exactly. He's been bashed around all the time through the previous three. We've never heard any of these. And what toy has, like, a cycle of, like, 20 different lines? And who's writing some of, like, some of these lines is just, this is not what you hear in toys. Yeah, it's, it's just, like, it, it kind of makes him just look dumb. And that, I don't like, I don't like dumb. At least not for him. Um, and so, yeah, like, that doesn't work for me much at all. He's he's fun with Key and Peele, though. Speaking of Key and Peele, I thought I would hate these characters so much in the tra- in the trailers that they felt very much like like DreamWorks kids like if you put Donkey from Shrek in a Pixar film it just it, it just felt like that that kind of that kind of rapid fire constant snark kind of very self aware it's not Pixar but they're hilarious <laughs> and I kind of love them yeah I like them a lot there's there were several bits with them where that I'm I'm, I'm just thinking like this is this is really funny stuff. Uh, whenever he th- like duck thinks that Bunny is dead, and then Bunny just gets up and he looks and he realizes he's attached to the other hand. Yeah, like, with these tiny legs, I cannot reach him without your help. <laughs> We've been. I cannot read your mind. Uh, yeah, like well, I can't read your mind. Who are these guys? So, like you promised as a kid. <laughs> uh, the the scene though of them like going through all of their different plans is amazing the last one just how long they stretch that joke out is incredible and the payoff is perfect but just the gag of two toys attacking a lovely little old lady it was that it was that in the trail all the trailers but even that is still hysterical in the film yeah and and then like so what's great is that joke has like two different payoffs because there's 
you know, there's we're seeing it again and again. And then the last one is just like this going over, like staying the night, going through like the bath, everything. And then the scream like that's hilarious. But then the actual payoff to the whole situation is she just puts the key right by him. <laughs> like, it's so uh, it's so good. How did you get the key? It was hard. Very difficult. <laughs> uh, and, and while we're you know, dwelling on awesome side characters, Duke Kaboom. And I think this was the film that kind of confirmed the Keanu sons for everyone. You know, he everyone was starting to love him again with um you know the John Wick films. Did this or always be my maybe come out first? Um, the Netflix film that everyone was talking about. I haven't seen it, but I'm not sure. That's the right one, right? For Keanu? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's in that one. Um and then like this came out, like those these those three films kind of came out and everyone's like all of a sudden, wait, Keanu's the best and you're awesome and you're unbelievable and you're breathtaking, whatever. Uh but he is great. He is so good. You do kaboom. Canada's greatest stuntman. <laughs> uh, just every single thing. You know, it was the happiest boxing day of my life. <laughs> it's a commercial. That. It's not real. His inner, his whole inner monologues are so fantastic. This inner turmoil. Yes, I Canada. <laughs> yeah, um, he's just. I could I like there's not much to say other than the quotes, but they're all, all of the quotes are so good and Keanu's vo- voice and vocal range just fits so perfectly. Yeah, he needs more <laughs> comedies. Yeah, and to stay on the topic of great side characters, you know, it's great to see Combat Carl again, and the the bit of humor that makes me laugh the most of the whole film is the poor little winter Combat Carl never getting his high five. <laughs> Like, he does get his high five. Did you watch the, the end of the credits? Uh-uh. Oh, oh. <laughs> watch to the end of the credits. Okay, I'll have to go back and rewatch it. But the it first so time, I, I thought it was hilarious. Because they just had, like, he looks around a little bit the first time the two other guys high five. And then when the joke happens again and he doesn't get it from Woody, like, oh, that made me laugh so hard. <laughs> it's so amazing. And it's like yeah. never, it's not pointed out. It's not, like, in the foreground. It's fantastic. The, yeah, the, the, the little the ga- the gags in this film are so. I feel like they had so long to work on this film that they they kind of put in like every goofy, funny Toy Story gag. Like they, they've done all the obvious ones, and so we got all these like very subtle, small ones going on in the background here. Like the humor isn't near, isn't nearly as big, but there's a lot of like really cool small things around. Um, and, and now to uh, come to the villain, um, Gabby Gabby. Uh, how did you feel about her? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm hoping to, like, f- be able to, uh, come to a more, like, firm conclusion on my thoughts just through this discussion. Like, there's there's a lot of things I like about her. I like her a lot when she's just doing the pure menacing thing. The, mm-hmm. the scene in the stroller is amazing. That scene has more tension to me than anything in Toy Story of Terror. Like, I, I watched this with my sister, and, like, one of my favorite shots of the whole movie is whenever they're there, and the camera just pans to the right as, like, one of the dummies walks out at the same speed, and then it just pans to the left, and, like, oh. it flanks it. Like, that shot... The freaking dummies! <laughs> that, that shot is amazing. And there's, like, there is an incredible amount... Because you know she's going to be the villain. But that whole stroller ride has, like, genuine, like... 
kids movie or not genuine tension and, and so whenever i was watching with my sister i just said to her like this would have freaked me out if i saw this as a kid like just being forced to sit in that stroller as long as that scene is drawn out with the atmosphere and mood and and they're playing on the record they're playing the song from the shining like the one that ends <laughs> that film it's ugh. so like whenever she's the villain and i love whenever we cut to her and she's like painting her freckles on in the mirror like that that just classic kind of villain shot uh i i think she has a great presence in those moments Mm -hmm. just then i love that she never ever breaks other than maybe like sadness in the end but like that very sweet generous you know southern lady kind of thing like she never breaks out of she never gets angry she never you know just like, and i think that's part of the creepiness is she is just so nice and so sweet stop him please like yeah like and the way that, the way she has conversations where she she's cute you know she's sweet and polite but like the way she just leads the conversation controls and manipulates it to get the information she wants which is very easy with forky um but uh it, it's it, yeah it's really unnerving um and I, I love what they do with her. Um, the, the, the whole thing of just uh, similar to uh, what's his name? Stinky Pete, you know, a toy that's never been played with, never been able to fill her purpose. But unlike him, she hasn't gone, you know, evil and cynical. Well, she has gone evil and cynical, but in a different way. Um, it's just you know, that, that desperate desire to fulfill her purpose. You know, the thing that Woody has had all of his life and you're know, taken for granted, she has never even been able to touch and that's all she wants. It just the obsession. You're watching um, Harmony through the glass and mimicking her. It's it's you know like it doesn't you know excuse what she did, but it's still like it's heartbreaking at the same time as she's you know being you know evil and trying to rip his Woody's voice box out. And just that, it's really really well done. And what they do with her in the end, I think, is so cool. It could, would have been. You know, so easy, and and it's what they've done. You know, for the for the previous Toy Story, you know, Toy Story one, Toy Story three villains is you know they give them their comeuppance and we laugh as they you know they're taken off to a life of misery and torment. And this one, it's so much just softness. It's a, a much softer and kinder film. It's like, and I I feel like maybe to a fault. Like it, I wish there was one, one very like explicit beat of repentance from her like she has that scene like after she's been when harmony picks her up and just drops her in the box and she's the villain but your soul just like breaks in two right yeah. there I, I don't believe she's evil like i don't believe the nice the, you know, the i'd be like she actually is that sweet kind person but has just been you know warped but i like i don't get the sense that she she doesn't you know, try to, you know, make anyone suffer. There's no, there's nothing, you know, she's not sadistic or purposely violent. She just, she just wants what she wants and she's going to go after it. So I, w I wish there was like a, a singular scene of like definitive repentance of that, of the fact that she was willing to trample over others to get what she wanted. That said, like, I love everything else surrounding how her character ends up. Um, Just the mercy from Woody of when he goes back you know, he's going back for Forky and she, they just have that conversation. 
and she just goes, you know, loving a child is the most noble thing a toy could do. And like, she's like giving him back all of his lines from the first Toy Story film. And he's just, he, and I think it's, it's, it's that moment where he's, he's able to save her soul is kind of, I think him where we, he kind of finds a new lease in, on life where when he's trying to save Forky, it was never about Forky as a person. It was all, it was about, you know, getting him to Bonnie, you know, whether or not Forky wanted it, whatever, whether or not it was best for Forky, he was doing it for Bonnie. I feel like it's saving her and doing this, you know, absolutely selfless, kind thing for her sake is kind of what gives him a purpose, you know, for the rest of his life because he hasn't had a purpose. You know, the whole thing has just been, you know, he is obsolete in Bonnie's life. Like she does not need him. She doesn't want him. It's not that she doesn't want him. She is not interested in him. And he's 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 accepting that you know, he's not like he wasn't. The, the, if that happened in the first Toy Story film, you know, he would have gone crazy and burned down the room. But he's accepting that. But he's still just trying to keep keep going above and beyond into areas that are actively damaging to other toys and and you know and just kind of just <laughs> sad and humiliating for himself. Um, and that's kind of what it is the Forky. You know, I, I don't believe it's not. I I don't believe Forky is entirely cut dry that way, which I think is what is so fascinating about the character. But you know, it's, it's it's kind of pathetic just how he has nothing else. Like uh, Bonnie doesn't want to play with him, but he so but he's still has to be doing something which i don't it's it's i feel it's really interesting just how non-black and white this the conflict in this film is like i don't believe the film is saying that he is wrong for what he's doing he's just a guy trying to make you know to find a purpose in life after the purpose is gone i i feel like it's more like the lengths and his obsession that the film is kind of saying we should be uncomfortable with i, I don't feel like it's and i feel like this is the did we work um well, I was talking about Gabby. Why, why, why am I talking about Woody now? <laughs> somehow, somehow I somehow switch over to Woody from Gabby. Uh, let's go back to Gabby, and I'll, I'll go back to Woody. Um, yeah, like I, 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 like she is the first toy that he's he's able to save and send on this new life, which kind of is what allows you know finding the purpose in her, you know, in helping her is what gives him, uh, you know, his you know a place to go off in in the future. Um, but just the scene with the lost child. There are certain moments. Of childlike loneliness and and and, and terror. And I mean, not not terror, but just like the, the, the kind of things that are frightening to a child. From this film that will like be forever burned into my brain. Um, Bonnie all alone in kindergarten. That is so oh, crushing. I I have a thing. I hate watching like kids be sad or kids be bullied or kids just like like anything like that. And now I found out that extends to like animation as well. Because whenever I was watching it, I was saying the whole time, like, this teacher should be fired. There's this sweet little girl over there crying at the table and nobody's... Oh, but the teacher is so nice and sweet, but she just doesn't... He doesn't see Bonnie. Uh, <laughs> she she leaves Bonnie off at a table for, like, five minutes. Just crying there. Makes no attempt to introduce her. Makes... Oh, it's wrong. It's just wrong. <laughs> like, you, the parents are monsters. How dare they leave her there? uh yeah uh like that was so heartbreaking and then this the little girl lost at the fair is so affecting and 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 just giving like allowing the film's villain to have that moment of you know being there you know um giving giving the child the comfort and courage that she needs to take that step out and look for help like the whole, the, this, the whole thing of what it, it's like everything Toy Story has been saying about what a toy is and a toy's purpose in the one scene 
with the fourth film's villain. It's so beautiful. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I, I, I do want, like, I feel like the film does let her off a little easy. And I wish they confirmed that when she goes to this next, uh, you know, to this next girl's house, she's not going to start, you know, an evil puppet dictatorship. <laughs> uh, but that said, I, I do just love what they did. And I think, you know, uh, uh, what's, her, what's her name? What's the voice actor's name? Uh, Christina, Christina Hendricks. Hendricks. Uh, she's just she's really good. Yeah, I, I, the character has pluses and minuses. I, I, I enjoy the character more than I dislike. And if, I don't even, I don't dislike the character. I think my only real issue with it is that it feels like another variation of Stinky Pete and Lots of Huggins, where it's mm-hmm. like it's a character that needs something from our protagonists and is holding them there, and you know, like it, it feels very similar. Um, and so like that, and you know, those weren't lots of Huggins was, I guess, in a way a bit derivative of Steve Sticky Pete, but not that more like the the motivations were different. They go, you know, both of those films put a lot of time or not a lot of time, but put time into their backstory, their motivations. and, And that's not, it's not as if that's not done here, but seeing it for the third time does begin to feel like, okay, so this is, this is what we're doing again. But I will give points for not going the same route, you know. They, we don't get that final moment to laugh at them. The, the We haven't seen a Toy Story villain redeemed yet. I, I feel like there's a, there's a lack of malevolence to our character at, at any point in the film. Like she's, she's framed you from... Like she's not entirely sympathetic at the beginning, but there's... Like you feel like, you know, Stinky Pete and, and a lot, so they enjoyed being evil. Whereas I feel like for her, it's just a means... Yeah, I think I'll save Woody for last. Then we got to talk about Bo Peep. Um, I really liked her in this movie. Like she was, you know, she was never all that big in the previous films, but I like how they kind of effortlessly retcon her as like the the leader of Bonnie's role. With you, they they implied history between her and Woody. Um, like we 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 knew that already, but like we never really saw it. And just the the way this film just kind of takes it for granted, is able to move along with that. That was really cool. I just I I think her voice acting is phenomenal. Like just something it's just, it just has this really rich voice that I I just like listening to. Um, but the whole kind of the concept of free range toys where they they you know they don't have an owner. They live this kind of wild rugged lifestyle. They go to playgrounds to get you know to to get played with, and it was just really cool. This the whole setup she has where she, like she's wearing her skirt as a cloak. Um, you know, her arm is taped on and, and like you can see her staff is broken and taped together and <laughs> driving around in a rocket old skunk. Um I, I loved uh, Billy Goat and Gruff. Oh yeah. Just <laughs> the the way I don't know, like it, it was there was a very uh, uh grommet from Wallace and Gromit vibe coming from Oh uh, yeah. Um Yeah, and I I really appreciate that this wasn't I I I feel like a different um like <clears throat> avengers endgame version of this story would have been bo peep is right woody is wrong he needs to learn you know to learn to you know not care about duty and not to care about you know what he's what he's loved he you know he's to uh, he you know uh you know this this loyalty and uh duty like yeah that, that's that's old and outdated you know you, you should be free like and independent like i, I feel like it's not like, it's not an either or um i feel like both of them actually have to learn and grow in so i, I feel like if they had gone, the like it was just only Woody learning from her, and she was just completely right. And you know, I, I think it would have, I wouldn't have worked nearly as well for me. I love that both characters kind of have to learn and grow from this 
connection they have where you see like this is something I particularly noticed in the second viewing where you know, despite the fact she's saying, you know, I don't need a kid. I'm I'm perfectly happy living this life, you know, freedom and independence. Like there are these lovely little touches of, of quiet where like uh, things like, you know, giggles like, you know, I didn't know you had a kid. And she kind of pauses and like you can tell she still you know, really misses what she had at that time. Um, but she's kind of like forcing it down. And just these little moments like oh, the a little moment I love is that after just their introduction together where they, they both lay on the ground and they just see each other and they can't move. That shot is amazing. Like yeah. whenever, whenever the hand holding Bo Peep just comes into frame and they're both, it's incredible just because like the, the detail and the texture on the toys, like it looks like real life and, but their expressions, like the expressions that the toys have whenever, you know, they are frozen as toys are just, are perfect for that moment. And so like, even though they're frozen because people are seeing them, just those lo- like those shots being held on both of their faces, like that, that moment is like such a nice little reunion. Mm. And, and the scene with it, they actually, they move out of there, they're able to kind of talk again and they kind of go in for the hug and stop halfway and kind of awkwardly pause. It's like this tiny little human interactions they're having. Um, and I feel like she's kind of extended this, you know, independence from a kid to also be like she doesn't really need a family like she's very much holding woody at arm's length and for her it's kind of opening up to the possibility of having a family and you know choosing family and loyalty over this kind of lifestyle she's had and you know that moment you know where, where giggles is um you know detailing all his flaws like yeah you gotta love it and she goes back for him so I, I like that she is also kind of she has her own you know smaller more subtle arc going on in the background of of you know, remembering what it was like to be loved by a kid, but you're know, suppressing it because it, it didn't work out for her. And uh, I love that moment where she goes to um, uh, she goes to help you know Bonnie, uh, and she goes to help Gabby, and she has and she has like incredible insight and that deep memory of how beautiful it was to be loved by a kid and how it, yeah it, 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 <laughs> and how it is truly worth it and like. Like coming from a character who's been kind of suppressing it for the entire film was really cool. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with everything you said. I like that it it was less of a this character is here so that this character has somewhere to grow to, and it felt more of a meeting in the middle. You know, um, you I, I forget the actual line, but um, whenever uh, giggles, whenever they find out, you know, Woody's going back, uh, and giggles is just kind of dismissive of him, but that reminds Bo Peep of, you know, that's a strength of his, is his loyalty to his friends. Um, mm-hmm. And so it it does feel as if both possess qualities that the other is in need of, um, you know, which makes them being able to be together at the end, you know, it, it makes that feel earned and nice. I guess to get, like, my last uh, criticism out of the way before we move into talking about Woody is... Uh, I feel, and this has to do a bit with our conversation on the film's structure, um, the the geography of this film feels a bit odd to me. Like, okay. the, the the geography of the actual locations is fantastic. Like we said, the, the antique shop is amazing. Um, the, it being at a fairground, this next, all the, like, I like all of this together, but I think because the film is structured in a not an odd way but just you know like we said it feels very different from the other ones i feel like a lot of this movie is going from this place 
to this place and then having a conversation here and then going back to this place. And like we we've, we go to every location before long, we've we visited every location we'll ever be at. And the remainder of the movie is often just let's we're going over here and then we're going over here and then we're going back over here. And then we're here. It just, it seems like a series of... A lot of chewing and farming. Yeah. And it, because they isolated themselves to, like, three distinct locations with with nothing else beyond that, those three dis- like locations are explored really well. But yeah, there is a lot of going from A to B, then A to B, then A to B. I might, that might have just been a budget issue. Like, the film is gorgeous, but, you know, they can only build so many locations. And if they're going to put this much... Probably the, the level of detail kind of had a cost of the amount of places you could go. Maybe, I don't know. I'm just completely speculating. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do agree that that is also kind of what bogs it down, I think, in the middle, like t- towards end of the third, end of the second act, being of the third act. It just feels like, and we're going back to the antique shop for the fourth, fifth time. <laughs> oh, and now we're, we're at, oh, oh, it's the playground again. Yeah. Um, however, I... I the idea of free-range toys going to the playground is so cool to me. Yeah, I, I do like that idea that it's like, well, it's that time, you know, let me see it at the playground. Also, there's Forky. I forgot about him. Uh, there are, the whole existential conversation around Forky is so fascinating. I'm not entirely sure if the character gets his full due, you know, compared to how just how deep and fascinating the questions are surrounding him. However, I love him. The mismatched eyes that kind of get cross-eyed. <laughs> like the the character design is so brilliant. Not only is it something so so that a child could make, but it's also so wildly expressive of just the the existential mess that this character is at his core. Um, like the like the eyes. Like you look into his eyes, and there's just so much there for me, at least. Uh, and I love. That he's actually a spork, but she calls him Forky. <laughs> okay, it's like one of those like little bits of like that's what a kid would do. And actually, I, I was listening to the to the, the interview with Andrew Stanton, and he said they wanted to call him Sporky, but the name Spork is owned, <laughs> you know, is copyrighted. Huh. So they <laughs> call him Forky, and I think that works better. <laughs> the jump scare as he comes to life, he screams. When he screams, and we cut off mid scream. <laughs> yeah, I. I can't believe that there's negativity around the character. I think one issue people have with this film is that it kind of, it expands the world so violently that people kind of resist, like, no, my Toy Story has to be this, it's nice and simple, everything makes sense, and for, like, things like Forky and things like Woody Levy at the end does open up an entire world of questions that I feel like a lot of people aren't entirely comfortable with trying to answer, um, and I, I can sympathize with that. Uh, you know, it, it, when this is done poorly, I think it, it can be incredibly... Uh, detrimental to a franchise me if it's done in the package of a forky i'm cool with it (laughs) Um, the only like criticism that i would have of it is like because she creates him and then thinks of him as a toy therefore giving him life like yeah that that opens up a whole can of worms and i i i do think that if you do that i i the thing that surprised me most about this film was how little emphasis ended up being placed on forky like, I thought that this was going to be Woody exploring his identity with Forky. You know, I thought I thought Forky's existential crisis was going to be more relevant to the primary themes. And it it he kind of does get left behind by the film and the these kind of 
larger questions of what is a toy, you know, what and what is the purpose because he was made from trash. His, you know, because a toy was made to be a toy, their primary, you know, the th- what gives them the most joy in life is to fulfill the function of a toy and be played with. And because he's made from trash, his primary function is to go in the trash. Like, there are these bigger ideas. And the, the movie does kind of lose him for a bit. So I understand the frustration that the ideas that, that he... Or the questions that his existence asks don't get explored the way I thought that they would. But as a character, I don't understand disliking the character. Yeah, I think Gabby Gabby kind of takes over. Like, uh, similar to Gabby Gabby, he, he is kind of one of the, the the turning points and stepping stones for Woody to move on. Like, you know, finding this new purpose in life of, you know, of essentially, you know, again, sa- saving this toy's soul. <laughs> just the whole t- t- trash. <laughs> it's the way he says that line. Um, and like, he is, he's a baby. He's a toddler. And like, you know, Babies are like the most self-destructive things on this planet. And like, how did children survive past two years old? Um, is a miracle. Like each and every one of them, <laughs> because of just, like, there's no self-preservation instinct. And I just the sequence, the montages of him like running towards the window, and we have to tackle him and just chasing him around, trying to grab him and keep him contained. Uh, were just hilarious to me. Um, I love the montage. Great song. Yeah. <laughs> When after he jumps out the window and he uh, and Woody grabs him and they're just walking and he'll like take a few steps and trip. <laughs> that visual is amazing. Carry me? No. I <laughs> just the the way that we go through that that night where first it's just Woody dragging him where he doesn't actually care about Forky like Forky is just a means to an end for him to you know continue his you know his obsession with making sure Bonnie's life is perfect. And then as the night goes through, you know, it ends where he's kind of carrying Forky like a baby, and they're both talking about the you know the meaning of life and everything. Uh, I love I love that uh you know Forky's breakthrough is where he realizes he is Bonnie's trash. Like the way he thinks about trash as that is the most important, beautiful, comfortable thing. Like Bonnie thinks about me that way. Like it, like the the way that breakthrough happens, I think is really cool. And, and I think you know his arc pretty much ends there. Which is kind of weird because it's like still in the beginning of the first act, um, but I, I do love the concept. I do, I, I do wish, I do agree that like I feel, like I wish if they had done a bit more to see that throughout the film, if there could have been like another big moment for Forky in the third act. But uh, uh, what was the actor's name? Was it Tony Hale? Tony Hale, who is in Arrested <laughs> Development, <laughs> and I'm going to use this to promote that show again. Everybody needs to watch it. It's the best comedy ever. They're walking the store. Bo, Bo. <laughs> <laughs> this is Forky. I'm trash. <laughs> the best line. You know, What's a merry-go-round? Oh, you mean a carousel? <laughs> oh, Woody, I've known that guy my whole life. Two days. Uh, like the character is absolutely delightful, and I will have fighting words for anyone who does not like him. Um, <laughs> final shot where they they leave Forky to keep the door locked, and then at the end. <laughs> The camera pounds pants down and he's hugging Woody's knees. Uh, it's adorable. Um, now we come to uh, the final guy, Woody. He's got an important character. And th- like this, like, they, all of these films have been Woody's films, but I feel like th- this more than ever is Woody's film. For me, Woody is the reason why I think this is like a genuinely like great film or at least very, very good. Um, just the, the themes, 
that you've explored with this character. And like, it's been fascinating. The kinds of ideas that have been explored through Woody in all three Toy Story films are like so incredible to me. Like the, like the types of existential explorations that happen in the first film of, of, you know, the fear of being displaced and losing your purpose. And the second film, the, it, the, the second film is about the existential crisis of the impermanence of life. And like, <laughs> this is your animated family film. I love it. And the, the third film is the metaphor for growing up and, you know, going off to college and you're starting and essentially moving past the things of childhood. And I believe this film is about like grandparents and like, like empty nesters and how, how, how to f- finding a purpose in life when the thing you define your entire life by just isn't there anymore or just has moved on. And, it's 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 crazy because it, it, it's a struggle that I don't think will mean anything to a child. Like this is this is story is here for the grownups. Yeah. Um, and not not even just grownups, like fifty plus year olds. It's and maybe it just says something about the kind of morbid guy I am. I always find like the the stories about old people trying to find purpose, like some of the, some of my favorites. I don't know why. Um. Just the fact that he's no longer the favorite toy. I don't think you know he's no longer the favorite toy, and he's not even the leader anymore in the beginning of the film. But and like he's not fighting it; he's accepted it. You know, he's he's going stir crazy, but he's accepted it, and like it's showing just how far he's grown since the first film. And I love how they they seeded they seeded throughout the film his relationship with both that beautiful scene in the beginning, or just when he's in front of the antique shop, and just the image of Bo's lamp in the window, and he doesn't even have to say anything; like you instantly hits you with a kind of that that love that was lost, you know, the, the thing that he that that, you know, that possibility that never happened earlier in his life. The the the, the two is him just kind of running back and forth frantically trying to make sure life is perfect for Bonnie, and that that moment of self sacrifice in the end. You know, just leave me for he Bonnie needs him. But he's going to sacrifice this huge part of himself because he believes you know that's what's right for Bonnie. Um, you know, this truly sacrificial love for a child. Uh, you know, it's very powerful. And it just, I think this is the most interesting. And I think for some people, potentially world breaking ideas of the toy leaving the child. Um, how, like, how does that, does that, does that bother you? Does that ring falls? Does that work? Or, uh, I had to think about it for a while when it ended because it, it like, I think part of the reason, so I, this is the, the first toy story movie. Um, and it may not remain this, the motions may hit me more on a rewatch which I plan on having but I like I didn't cry through this and part of the reason at the end I, I did the first time I did the second time so yeah maybe maybe uh I'll it'll hit me harder but I think part of the reason why the the ending wasn't doing everything it needed to for me emotionally is because I was still processing my thoughts on this kind of idea of of a toy being able to find purpose outside of of you know their child you know it's a staple of the series has been the the name on the shoe you know this is this is who like my this is who i please this is who i my identity and it's it's presented as a very positive thing like this is a toy doing what a toy needs to do this is i i understand and sympathize with people um who were weren't able to get on board with this because initially I like I said even through the ending I was still figuring it out um but then as I thought about it more in terms of of the kind of this is a re- retirement movie this is a character who's 
who's, you know, he's clocked in day in and day out and has had this just insane sense of duty and, and love for what he did. Uh, and when you look at it as that, then it became much less like world changing, you know, because toys can't age in that, you know, they look like they're getting older, but they do go, you know, they do grow older in a sense. And and their arms break off. Exactly. <laughs> and this, using this as a way of conveying getting older as a toy, I think is actually really smart of your child no longer needs you. You've put in the work for a long time. Now you're retiring, you know, then, then that tracks with, you know, what this world has set up. Um, if this is the version, if this is the Toy Story universe's way of conveying what it means to get older, then I don't feel like it's really betraying or breaking anything that's come before. And I, it, I was able to be okay with it. And it's like, it's just a really bold decision, you know, to break Woody away from the rest of the group. And just that alone gets my respect. And uh, similar to, to the way Bo Peep is handled, I don't believe it's an either or. Like, there is no point at this film where devotion to a child and, you know, a toy devoting their life to a child and, you know, fulfilling the child's needs is painted in a negative light. And, like, even the free-range toys, they live for the playtime. Yeah. It's, you know, it comes in a different form, but you know, that's what they're here for. And uh, the... Uh, and it, I love that you know, if if Bonnie still needed Woody, uh, okay, I, I and I love I love that Woody's choice in the beginning of the film. It's hard, it's heartbreaking, but I believe the I don't believe the movie is saying that was the wrong choice. You know, to stay with Andy because Andy needed him to you know to choose Andy over his own personal you know pleasure at that you know desire at that moment. I believe is painted as the correct choice, and the only reason that he is able I think able to you know, maintain his character and uh, integrity and leave Bonnie still because Bonnie has moved past him. She doesn't need him. Also, I've got, I like, as Bonnie's great, she's adorable. I was sad when she was sad. I've got a bone to pick with her. Whenever the toy was being, whenever the toys were being handed off in Toy Story 3, he introduced Woody as his best friend, the most meaningful toy ever. This, you know, you've got to take especially good care with him. And she leaves him in the closet. Kids That's these days. No respect. <laughs> yeah, but like, and just that whole existential crisis of like, I devoted my life to the, you know, what, what is it? Whatever it is, you know, to raising a child to this profession and it's gone. You know, how do I live? What do I live for? Do I keep, you know, pathetically trying to hang around the thing and, you know, uh, and do you smother the kid or you know, smother my adult child? Do I, you know, just try to putter along with this career that doesn't work anymore? Like, it's it's such a fascinating and human question of just, of just trying, just trying to be alive, and yeah. in a world that just doesn't need you anymore. And that's what I got. And I wonder, it's a weird point of comparison. So I I doubt it's going to be shared by a lot of people, but. The vibe, just the, the mood and and feel of, of what he was going through and what this movie was saying and his whole journey, it felt as if it like it gave me the same feeling as the ending of Return of the King of, you know, how does one move on? Just the feeling of being different from the world you're in now, 
you know this mm-hmm. this place is no longer home for me like other people live here other people have a purpose here and that's fantastic and i wish the best for them but this is not where i'm called to and so you know frodo gets the invitation to the you know to go to the white shores to to ride the gray havens woody gets the invitation to live this life of these free range like it it they feel very similar of like it's it's not as if you're making a selfish choice you know you're in, you're you have dedicated your entire self to a good cause and now that it is the, the cause has been completed the world that is now left before you is no longer the world that needs you and mm-hmm. because of that that last that departure at the end feels earned and it doesn't feel as if it's in conflict with the character or the message and i i like that it's still about service like he's not just retiring you know leaving and going to be idle and just live a, live a entirely selfish hedonistic life with bo peep it's still he's adapting you know he's finding a new way to serve children to help toys like you know, he's now having this life where he's connecting children you know you know uh, lonely children with lonely toys and essentially giving giving new fresh toys the purpose that's defined his life for the, the last however you know 30 years or whatever yeah it's not just it's not all just about him it, it's still about the service of being a toy of being there for a kid it's just adapted to the fact that you know the light that that life doesn't fit him anymore and i think for me like this is kind of like the anti-thor in avengers endgame for me where i feel like that, that film everything everything comes back to thor <laughs> Uh, like that film, I think very, at least to me, very much disrespected, you know, who Thor was in the previous films and what, you know, what Thor was after, what defined Thor in the previous films, like essentially saying like you were, that was wrong. Like you shouldn't have been doing that. You were wrong for doing that. And that was, that's your problem. That's why you're in this mess now is because you were wrong then. Um, and essentially the, the answer is to stop trying. And like, he ends that film with no vision for life. No, nowhere to go. Like he's not, he's not, there's no purpose. He has real no purpose. He's just kind of. I'm just gonna go wander. He's gonna find himself, man. Yeah. Whereas this film, it leaves Woody. You know, it's it respects where he was and who he was, and honors that. Like that was what you know, Toy Story one, two, and three. That was where you belonged. That was good, but it's over. And you know, it, it honors that, and you know, uses that to guide him into his new life. You know, he's still being a toy. He's still being there for kids. He's still serving. But it's it's just adapting to a changing world and a cha- you know, his own changing self. Um, I feel like it's so much better thought out than that than that Thor's arc was, despite I you know kind of sort of ending in a similar place. I think it, it does it in a, a much, I think, more thoughtful, I think just a morally interesting way. And you know, I I also like that Woody would have come back to the RV. You know. It was, you know, Buzz who was saying, she needs you. Bonnie will be fine. Yeah, she'll and, be fine. You know, Bonnie will be fine. Oh, it's so good. Oh, that's right. That's right. That line is amazing. And that being this kind of permission, for lack of a better word, like I, I like that, you know, that Woody's loyalty would have carried him there and that it is this acknowledgement from his family that this is okay that that's what you know allows him to go off 
Um, uh, paralleling that scene with Woody's hands on the edge of the roof, like they were on the edge of the box in uh, the beginning. Just uh, Buzz and Woody embracing in front of the Ferris wheel. Like, it's, that scene is so manipulative, but I love it. Like, it's everything is there to make me cry. <laughs> um, the way Jesse picks him up and spins him around, then Bullseye jumps on him and starts looking at him. Which is exactly how they first met in Toy Story 2. Yep, exactly. It felt like almost the same animation. I loved it. It's, uh, I, it, I didn't, again, I, I think like you, I was a little, I was kind of resisting the whole, like, wait, toys can't be free. You know, they, have, they belong to the kid. And the first time, I think, you know, however, the second time I'm kind of seeing the nuance, I was, it, it hit me so much harder. And I actually did, did cry that second time. Well, I'm hoping to. The, so the, I guess, you know, we haven't, Aside from just dismissing it as like the thing where the movie's not doing much, like the RV stuff, I hate bringing this up at the end because I don't like ending with a criticism. So I'll say something positive after. <laughs> um, the the one area of this film in which I do feel like they're channeling the humor and just feeling of DreamWorks is is a lot like a lot of the stuff in the RV, like. It, it could work in a movie and it's not inherently bad, but like, you know, pretending to be the GPS, like that dad is an idiot. <laughs> like <laughs> following the, following her voice uh, as if it were the GPS and never looking down at his foot. You do, you're pressing the gas and you're never looking down to see, Hey, like there's like a foot long, like triceratops toy pulling down the gas pedal. Like just, uh, and the, the stopping and starting and the unlocking, like all of it felt I guess out of place for the kinds of film that the Toy Story films are, and almost kind of out of place in this film, which was so quiet, having that big, loud, kind of goofy ending, did feel a little strange here. Yeah, and I couldn't imagine like just anybody other than like kids, you know, just like laughing at at it starting and stopping and going and go. Like it, I don't know. It just it it was all visual, and there was like I don't know. There was nothing really clever about it, mm-hmm. and so I don't know. And yeah, you're right. Even within this own film, it it feels, you know, we've got these quiet scenes of conversation and we're cutting back to this. And it's it's also weird to see the toys interacting in the world, like as overtly as they were this time around. Mm-hmm. Like that, I mean, yeah, that whole sequence just feels weird. They come out and confront weird. a child and absolutely traumatize him in the first film. That's true, but so that scene is freaking amazing. Uh, like, so it, it's, de- it's definitely within their abilities if they want it. Oh, it's within their bill because I I didn't find out until recently that there's a lot of people that don't think that the toys are actually coming to life. They're like like they're like they're they're physically like meta like you know, metaphysically unable to move when they're seen by a child. Yeah, like as if this is the imagination. This is how the kids imagine them when they're not there. So like, I I so, it wasn't until recently that I heard that, wait, but to whoa, me like people people don't think the toys are actually alive. There's nothing but imagination. Yes, yes, that is. Who are these weirdos, and where can I find them and not and avoid them? <laughs> I, man, I, I just I've seen it in various groups, and that's it's depressing. Weird. That's really depressing. I'm not going to think about it ever again. <laughs> um, but also, I think some people also kind of thought of them like as the the weeping angels from uh, the Doctor Who, where they literally cannot move if a person's eyes are upon them. Which again, you know, definitely isn't the case if you look at them. Um, Toy Story One. And, I mean, somebody did have to ask the stupid question of like, why does Buzz pretend to be a toy whenever people are around him in Toy Story One before his arc is finished? Programming. Next. No, I. 
I can't find that satisfaction. I hate that that question was asked. I hate it. <laughs> um, yeah, who cares? Moving on. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I think we've pretty well covered this movie. Is anything else you talk about before we move into our final star rating? Uh, I think I'm ready. So, James, yeah, you want to give us your final thoughts on this film? Uh, what do you give it out of five stars, and how do you rank the Toy Story series? Yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm not entirely sure the final star rating um i'm between like just because the the emotional payoff like it's hard to to feel as if i really could apply one because i was thinking about everything the movie was saying and kind of like not emotionally absent from the ending but i i just i was not where i should have been for it um and so i was going between three and a half and four i think i'm going to settle on four um and I, I, that'll probably be um, more. I'll, pro- I'll probably be more okay with with giving it four on second viewing now that it, I've kind of come to terms with certain things with it. Um, as for the the ranking of the series, I go uh, Toy Story three, then Toy Story one, then Toy Story two, then Toy Story four. Um, so I I get it four on the first viewing. I, I bumped it up to four and a half the second, and it stayed that way on the third. I I marvel that a film like this can exist, and like just shut up about the unnecessary sequels like look at what this film is it's this very quiet subdued film about egg, egg, you know about essentially adults going through existential crisis in the in the package of this fam- animated family film and it's, i just i so admire its ability to just sit down and be quiet and let characters talk about their feelings and emotions it's, it's like it's like the, the 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 animated version of the first half of a uh, of endgame um and it just the questions it explores, the, the fact that it, it has the courage to just explore this entirely adult conundrum, um, you know, uh, of you finding purpose in, in, in you finding purpose, um, you know, in the next in the in the second phase, in the, the second half of your life, um, I don't know, just it's, it's, as a thematically it means a lot to me, um, despite you know not exactly being relevant to me. I don't know why, <laughs> but. And so, yeah, I, I find I just I, I deeply admire, you know, what it is, even despite it having, I think, some pretty uh, some pretty uh, deep structural issues. It just it, and I would also rank it exactly the same as you, uh, three, one, two, four. I, I think those films are they're so perfect. They you know they have all the, just as much thematic depth, but they also I think they 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 function better in that adventure framework where I feel like this film doesn't entirely know if it wants to be a quiet adult drama or a children's adventure story. It leans toward towards the former, but I think it, it still has the feeling like it it, tr- it knows that Toy Story films are adventure films, despite the fact that that's not what it's being. So it gives like half hearted nods here and there, and it. It doesn't entirely work smoothly, but it works well enough. Um, so I have four and a half. Um, it is my least favorite, but we're talking in, in a series that doesn't go below 4.5 stars. So that doesn't mean terribly much. So moving into the uh, the box office and reception, it earned 434 million domestically and 639 in the in the foreign markets for a worldwide total of 1 billion 73 million on its roughly 200 million dollar budget. That's crazy. What a surprise. It's one of nine films from 2019 to earn a billion, uh, seven of which were from Disney, and that's not including Far From Home, which was also you know a co-production with Disney. It stands as the highest. They're just making up for 2020, I think. Yeah, like the, it, it's it's probably really good that they. Well, it was all Disney. Like there are <laughs> all that money's going to Disney, but it it had it has to be good for for the you know the, the filmmaking community that that they made all that money that year because 
They're not making any money this year. Oh boy. I uh, like the yeah, Pixar's latest film onward just it completely bombed because it came out <laughs> the week of coronavirus. Talking about bad timing. Um yeah, so it is it stands as the highest grossing uh Toy Story film domestically and worldwide, although uh, Toy Story 3 is very close behind it. Um and it is the second highest grossing Pixar film domestically behind only Incredibles 2 and the third worldwide behind Incredibles 2 and Finding Dory. As far as the critical reception, it received a 97% on Rotten Tomatoes and an 84 on Metacritic, which is very solid. The consensus seems to cut on that site at least seems to be like, did we need it? No, but now that it's here, it's actually really good. And it is interesting that it didn't get any of the best Toy Story ever. Like, I feel like every time a sequel comes out, there's a there's a sizable crowd saying, like, this is the best, you know, the best, obviously the best movie in the series. You know, no no one said that about this out of the gate, which I'm I'm always glad that there's less hyperbole in the world, but it's also kind of sad. <laughs> well, I feel like there's there's been a few at this point. Um, you know, nobody was saying that about any of the cars or Monsters U or Finding Dory. Or... People were saying that about Cars 3. What? Yeah. I mean, no one likes Cars anyways. <laughs> it's like cool to hate on them, but, yeah, but so that doesn't mean a lot. But people were saying Cars 3 is really good. Oh, the best of the series? Yeah. Like, yeah so it's weird. Like before I read all of that very grumpy... Uh, re- uh, feedback that we got. I would have said that this was, you know, a pretty well liked movie. Um, and I still feel like that, despite <laughs> no one liking it, nobody that responded liking it. And how are your feelings? Like, how do you feel this film is uh is uh you know thought about in the film community and just at large? Um, I mean, I've, I I've, aside from that, I was surprised when we got the reaction we did because by far most of what I read, whether it is you know reviews from critics or just people talking it was like yeah i still don't know if it was necessary but i was actually surprised with how much i liked it like that that sentiment i see in 95 percent of the interactions i've ever seen people have with the film mm-hmm. um so maybe i don't know maybe we got a grumpy bunch but <laughs> uh yeah i see mostly mostly positive even like i was watching through uh it's like a more pretentious list of like what's the best movies of the year and they had a category for animation and instead of being like we're not gonna pick toy story 4 because it's derivative blah 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 they were like we were actually surprised with how heartfelt uh, this was and while it wasn't necessary like it's the same thing it's like this is actually really good mm-hmm. that, that, that was the, definitely the critical reception um as far as awards it did it won best animated feature at the oscars uh which i thought it i that was what i was rooting for um, I Can't Let You Throw Yourself Away was also nominated for Best Original Song, but lost to I'm Gonna Love Me Again from Rocket Man. Um, I'm actually, I can't believe that Frozen 2 didn't get, didn't win um, the best song because it has the best songs. Yes, I said that. Uh, it, w- it was also nominated for Best AMA Feature at the Golden Globes, but lost to Missing Link, which is shocking because nobody talks about Missing Link. <laughs> so yeah, as to the future of this franchise, uh, there's absolutely no talk of another sequel as of yet. Uh, they had the series for for he asked the questions. They were all written and directed by Bob Peterson, and they had ten shorts on Disney Plus. They also released the short the short called Lamp Life, uh, which followed Bo Peep's journey between the three and four, uh, which was written and directed by the Toy Story Four writers uh, writer sorry by one of our uh, Toy Story Four's writers Valerie Lapointe. But before this, I would have said they probably won't do another one. But having listened to the way they talk about the series, I won't be surprised if in another ten years they find another idea that they want to t- they, they want to explore and they just kind of su- announce another surprise sequel um and i can't i'm not i'm not dying for one i don't i don't need one and it's not quote unquote necessary whatever that means uh but i'm not 
I'm not as closed down to the idea as I was like when I first heard the announcement, you know, loving Toy Story 3 so much. Yeah. As to the film's legacy, I don't I really don't know. I feel I feel like we need some hindsight. I feel like we're kind of in the middle of the 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 back the backlash that most films get. Um, or you know, most films of, the, of this level. Um, so, h- how are you thinking this film is going to be remembered? I I think that it's going. I think people are going to be kinder on it within a few years. Um, but I don't know. There there still seems to be, and again, this is it's a it's still a fairly recent movie. There still seems to be a disconnect, and this may go back to what I was saying earlier. It's just like we we just tend to think in threes. Like there's there's the Toy Story trilogy plus Toy Story four, and I almost wonder how much of the original of, of the legacy of the the trilogy that it's going to be able to hitch itself to. You know, like I, it seems like the trilogy at this point is is remembered as a whole. Like there's there's still some sense of separation from four and the first three, and and so I I don't know how much of the legacy of those originals it's going to share in if if you know years from now it will be able to like graft itself onto that and you just think of the the toy story singular like as a legacy or if it will be like yeah there was the amazing trilogy and then there was four as if it's like two separate legacies so i i I don't know yet maybe it'll do the star wars thing where you know, you'll have the people just the originals, not the prequels. You know, just the originals and the prequels, not the sequels. And now it's all three, and it's not going to be whatever the next trilogy is. Like, I feel like it, you, it being a family film, I feel like you're going to have a generation of kids who grew up where it's always it's always been for. So, what, like, they they won't know what all these grumpy adults are complaining about. Yeah, like the, the things like that are kind of things that you have to live through to understand it and to to fully get. Often, unless like the sequel's really really bad. Um, which I don't think it's this. So yeah, I, I I am interested to see if they have if the future kind of you know views it as separate. All right, I think that's a pretty good place to end. So that was our review of Toy Story Four. I hope you enjoyed it, and if you did, again, I'd like to ask you to please head over to iTunes and uh, subscribe and leave us a rating review. Uh, if you want to like us on Facebook, we're the Franchise City Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram as at Franchised Pod. And if you want to find our other episodes, you can go to franchisedpodcast.com. And where can people follow you, James? Uh, you can follow me over on Letterboxd. Uh, I am on a movie spree with all of the social distancing. Um, although I haven't really been reviewing anything. Um, but I have other things written there. Uh, I'm there as JL Hamry. It's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. And you can also follow us over on The Outer Rim, a Star Wars group. Uh, we are still right in the middle of the the final season of The Clone Wars. And we just got huge announcements. Uh, Ahsoka Tana is going to be in season two of the Mandalorian Rosario Dawson has been cast like there's despite the the you know the finality in the the film series now that the three trilogies are ended there's still a lot going on so if you are excited Clone about Wars. yes Clone Wars is going on and that's always important um, so if you want to talk Star Wars je- definitely join us over there and I'm also on Letterboxd and there's Gabriel Green you can keep up to date with all the uh, movies I'm watching um you can also follow me on Instagram as Gabe the Great Green, and I have a YouTube channel called Greenery01, where I make these uh, film-based music videos. Next week, we're going to try something new on the show. Um, so in between uh, series, uh, we're going to kind of just splice in random films, uh, which I also is going to be fun because we've all, you know, with, with this show, we've always kind of been constrained to either underrated movies or franchise movies. So. And which I, I, I kind of li- like. I need that structure. However, I, I think it's going to be cool. We're going to try to, you know, occasionally between the series, step out and just 
talk about a movie that we really want to talk about. So that's what we're going to do next week, and we're just, we'll see how that works out. Um, and if, if, if we like it, we'll probably do that in between each series, or maybe break up series every now and then with a, just kind of any, a random movie that we like. Uh, so next week, uh, we're going to be talking about the absolutely wonderful Jojo Rabbit um, from last year. Uh, many tears will be shed, mm. and many laughs will be mm. had. Yeah, I, I saw it in the theaters once, and then when it came out, I watched it three times in the week of its release, so... <laughs> I'm very ready to talk about it. Yeah, it's James's greatest showman. Yes, this is this is the one where I'm just like, oh, everything. I love it all. Yeah, so that's what we're talking about next week. Uh, that was my favorite from last year. So spoilers, we love it, and it's, I cannot wait. All right, so and next week, uh, you can see us uh, in Nazi Germany, I guess. This is for you, Rajan. Yeah.